time again for DDA's Encouraging Abilities podcast. I am your host, DDA Communications Manager Evan Kelly. Joining me today is Rochelle Rosolofo Cherwinski. I'm hoping I'm saying that correctly. You do. <laughs> that's a t- that's a difficult one. Now Rochelle has an amazing story to tell, which she has uh, brought to life in a new memoir called "The Life That's Chosen Me from Russia with Love." It is available on Amazon, and it's it's a very well written and fairly quick read if you're interested in picking it up. Now it's part travel writing, part diving into the culture and language of other countries, part learning to do that with a family of four where one child has a severe uh, developmental disabilities. Rochelle was born in Madagascar, raised in France, and then married a German-Canadian who worked high up with the United Nations, and it's a job that took her husband, Chris, to East and West Africa, Italy, China, Egypt, and then over to Russia. Uh, To me, it sounds like an amazing life, but of course, there are hardships and difficulties along the way because it's not just about traveling freely. It's uprooting, it's making big changes, it's moving for a partner's profession, it's creating homes, even learning new languages, all with a child who needs extra care. Rochelle and her family, which includes her two sons, uh, Mike and Nicholas, now reside in Vancouver, and we're, of course, happy to have them back here. So thank you for joining me today, Rochelle. Thank you, Ivan, for having me. Now, it's clear you've led a very interesting life. Now, before we talk about disabilities, uh, not everyone can do what you did. Uh, That's getting up and moving for a spouse whose job has changed, especially with entire family in tow. How difficult was that for you? Uh, to tell the truth, at the beginning, it was not. I just took it in stride, you know, and uh, here I am, a new bride, and my job was to follow my husband, and uh, I just thought when I came from Madagascar that we would settle in Canada. So little did I know that six months after settling down in Vancouver, he, my husband announced that we go into Africa. And from there, you know, after Africa, it was Italy. And as you mentioned, then after Italy, it was China and uh, then Egypt and finally Russia. And I think in Russia, I started feeling a little tired. Little, you're done with this globe, globe trotting, I guess, as it were. Yeah. I mean, that must have been, you know, like I, like I said, it's not, just a, it's not just traveling freely without kids when you're young or something like that. It's literally recreating home wherever you are. That I mean, is that a difficult thing for you to do, or do you just take that on as a challenge? I took that on as a challenge, but as time went by, it became more and more difficult. Like you're losing your friends, and you have to look for new schools and uh, and create new homes. And of course, you know, with a child with special needs, and uh, our son Nicholas had severe, significant special needs. It, mm-hmm. it became harder to find therapies for him and. Uh, physiotherapies and the speech therapies and this and that so it's difficult enough if you stay in the same city like Vancouver but imagine if you have to move country mm-hmm. and not just country but continent because we actually change continent yeah. each time yeah well exactly and obviously there's some cultural things we can we can dive into as well but you also mentioned that you've learned multiple languages how many languages can you speak now more or less fluently five i think french is really my first language when i came to vancouver but because we did everything in english i kind of picked english i did learn english in school um and you may still hear a little french accent here oh of course (laughs) no more than a little (laughs) more than a little okay (laughs) and i've been like 20 years in vancouver now (laughs) but you also can you can you speak chinese uh, 
How do you say yes in Chinese now? Um, let me see. Um, tui, 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 tui. tui, tui, tui. So, washwo, washwo, pontungwa. Ni hao ma wu nan hao ni ne. I did study Chinese for a semester in, in post-secondary, and that was uh, one of the most impossible things I've ever taken on. So I, I doff my hat to you to be able to do that. And, and did you learn a bunch of Russian then as well? I learned Russian during our two years in Russia. Russia was not as easy for me. And I think if you read the book, I mentioned that. I have more difficulty when it is a different alphabet as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it is a Roman alphabet, French and English share the same alphabet, most European languages like German, oh, yeah. like Italian, which I speak to. French. Uh, French. They, we, we share the same ABC. That's the Romantic languages, right? Right. Um, But when it came to Russian, they use the Cyrillic alphabet. When it comes to Chinese, they use those hieroglyphs, those Mm -hmm. um, pictograms. And so then it becomes more difficult. So in those countries, I learned more to talk and to understand. I didn't put too much energy in learning to read and write because I knew it would take me years. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so, Mm -hmm. yeah. So is it a bit of a relief to get back to Canada? Absolutely. And when did you come back to Canada? What year was that? Uh, So I arrived in Canada from Madagascar in 1984 to get married. And we started our nomadic life soon after that. Mm -hmm. And we came then back for good to Canada in 2005. Now... Is your husband still working in Russia, or is he for here for good now, too? He's, in Can- he's back in Canada for good, yeah. Oh, that's good. And, and, and is he still working with the United Nations here, or is it something different he's doing? Well, he does some consultation work, uh, so at least we'll be based in Canada, which is um, providing more stability for the family. And mm-hmm. uh, But then he did some consultation work in Africa, in Asia, and uh, yeah. Now, um Tell me about your sons. Michael, he's he's your typically developed son. He's He must be, uh, I'm guessing, pushing 30 now? You're guessing right. <laughs> he's 36. And Nicholas, our young adult, uh, but still a big baby in many ways. Mm-hmm. So Nicholas is now 35. Oh, so there, yeah. So what is, what is uh, you talk about in your book about Mike, you know, trying to adapt in a variety of different schools and different countries, which must have been a challenge for him at the same time. I was thinking, you know, when I was reading this book, how... He probably looks back on that with a certain fondness, and he's got this incredible life story behind him now. So, so what is he doing with himself now? So now he he he, he works in. Uh, he, he used to run his own company, mm-hmm. and then when COVID hit, you know that kind of took a dive, like many small companies. Mm-hmm. And now he's working with a concrete making company in Coquitlam. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And so, how is Nicholas doing? And Nicholas is well settled in his own life. He doesn't live with us anymore. Um, uh, he does. He cannot live alone uh, mm-hmm. because of his special needs. But he, he shares a house with another person with disabilities and with a team of support workers. So very, very much like what DDA does for for our clients. But you, like you mentioned, you're working with uh, Spectrum right. organization. Yeah. And how is does he like living on? How long? I guess I should say how long has he been living on his own? 
And uh, so I think he started living on his own in 2009. Then that was a big transition for me uh, because, as I said, he's still like a big baby. And, of course, for a mother to let go of a baby, no matter <laughs> his size his, or his weight or whatever, he's still a baby. And so that was that big transition for me to let him go, yeah. Yeah. And he, does he enjoy being apart from you? Does he like, is he enjoying his independence? Yeah, he has a fairly structured life. He goes swimming on Wednesday, science world on Thursday, music on Tuesday, a library on other days. Um, I think he's going, I think he's going to outlive all of us. Well, that's good. I mean, it sounds like he's uh, really enjoying enjoying his life. Uh, let's go. Let's go way back, though. Like when you when you first uh, knew that Nicholas was going to have problems, how did you how did you feel about that? And how did you deal with that? So I remember that clearly. That was in Africa. We were in this small African country that's called Djibouti, and um, and um, Djibouti is one of the hottest countries in the world. Oh, wow. It's like 45 degrees Celsius, you know, at night. So during Oof. the day, it's even more. And and so the habit of people there is to have a nap. Otherwise, you cannot survive. Nobody mm-hmm. works it's between siesta, 12. I guess. Last siesta, <laughs> exactly. Everybody is away um, and, have, and have a nap between 12 and 3. And uh, most uh, organizations would only open until 1, and then everybody is off till the evening. And I remember clearly one time we were having a nap and my husband got up and he told me Nicolas is doing some funny things. And, you know, I was a new mom. Nicolas was two months old, maybe three. I said, oh, you know, it's just a baby. And my husband said, I think he's doing really some strange things. And so finally I got up and yeah, and I had no experience at all about seizures, but Mm. he had, he was having seizures. Yeah. Mm. So that was quite a shock, yeah. And that sort of that, and then at that point you knew, like, okay, there's some developmental things going on here, and exactly. And so luckily, my husband had more experience in seizures than me because he had volunteered with L'Arche, uh, which is a big organization, yeah. and they are everywhere in the world. And he had done a gap year after UBC in L'Arche in France. Um, and so he, he, he had been exposed to people with, uh, with disabilities and he told me we need to take him right away to the doctor and I, I'm like, oh my God, are you sure? And so, yeah, we, mm-hmm. and then after that, it went really fast. Three days later, we were on the plane to Paris to a pediatric hospital stayed there for three weeks and for me it was like the worst time of my life having to come to terms mm-hmm. with the diagnostic that you will be very impacted and the doctors in France said you know we we don't know how it develop but we just know it's going to be mm-hmm. long long and you know life lasting and stuff so the big question that I think is interesting about you know your book um, is what is it like moving from country to country that is a child that has uh, more needs than a, than a typically developed child? It's very challenging. Um, um, uh, as I said, we need to find therapies, and and as that was my job, my husband's job was, you know, he, he was moving into a new office, getting to know his new team, and and mm-hmm. for me, my job was to find a, a, a home <laughs> and hire people and find help and. Uh, find schools and um, 
And at the beginning, as I said, I kind of just, okay, that's my job. But as you know, as you get older and you move from country to country, and this is your fifth country, and Nicholas was getting older, and I really kind of missed some stability uh, in, his, in his care, in his uh, life, uh, instead of uprooting everybody every three to four years, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, like what, what I kind of want to touch on is because my uh, my executive director Alana Hendren has has actually uh, written a book about her experiences traveling the world and seeing how people and how organizations come together to help people with developmental disabilities. It's not published yet, but we're, she's working on it. Um, so, like when you go to s- some place like Djibouti and and you have a child that has uh, developmental disabilities, how are, how do you feel like you're treated? Or is, what's inclusion like in Djibouti? Yeah, so that's a very good question because every country was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wrote a book about Russia because Russia was kind of the worst country. And oh. it was good that in a way it was the last country after Russia I was done. Like I mm-hmm. wanted to go back to Canada. Uh, Djibouti uh, was our first country with Nicolas and Nicolas was a baby. And so, you know, as baby, you don't really see much difference. Mm-hmm. He was very cute. Um, he, he was healthy, apart from his disabilities. And so we were not treated any any different. Um, there was one time where I had to take him to a hospital in Paris. And um, the local daycare was very nice and um, decided to take Nicola, Michael early. He was, he was younger than what they would have taken. But because of the situation, I was away with Nicolas for three weeks and, and my husband had to go to work. And, and so, yeah, so people were nice and trying to help. And, uh, and our neighbor was a, f- a physician. And so she said, don't worry, I'll keep an eye. You know, I'll bring soup to you to crazy if he mm-hmm. needs or, you know, so. So the community kind of rallies around you, which was which was nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was and what about China? Like, how old were you? Was Nicholas when you were living in China? So China was ninety four to ninety eight, and Nicholas would have been ten. Um, it would be six to ten. And in China, we had a wonderful um, household helper. Her name was Mrs. Go, and I really saw her as Nicholas' second mother. Mm-hmm. Um, because she was so nurturing towards him, and uh, and um, and that was one of our best countries. So China was not very good for people with disabilities, people who look different. There were a lot of orphanages in China uh, that had children that families could not keep. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and many of those kids were kids with disabilities, and some were were girls because mm-hmm. in, in in that time there was a one child policy mm-hmm. in China so people could just have one child and because of their culture they'd rather have a son oh, yeah. yeah right so we it's kind of sad yeah, exactly and so when they have daughters then they knew they were not allowed a second child so they would give the baby girl to orphanages in order to have a son or have a chance to have mm-hmm. a son so China was not the best country officially with our government policy but you find everywhere good people um so and mrs mm-hmm. Guo, our nanny was one of those people and do places like like djibouti and and, and china did it's one thing to be able to hire support which which not everybody's going to have of course yeah um 
But are there programs that you can enroll kids with disabilities into? Are, the, are those readily available, or is that is that difficult to find, or is it just not supported? Or they were very difficult to find. They were um, practically non-existent. Um, so when we were in Egypt, um, when Nicholas was young, he could still manage to go to regular schools with a helper like uh, an SEA, Special Education Assistant. So that's what we did for a while. But then as he grew taller and older, it was really hard to leave him in the preschool when everybody was two years old and he was six. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of challenging. Um, yeah, I guess so. So yeah, we had to be creative. And uh, in some countries, I had to help create a school mm. so that Nicolas could have a place to go during the day. Can you tell me a bit about that, about creating a school? So like in Egypt, for example, um, I oh. was looking for a school. We were living in Cairo and um, and um, there was no school in the neighborhood. And so I talked to people and one lady said, you know, I'm thinking of creating a school. And I said, please, please, would you? You know, I would, I could help you. I could, you know, help you financially uh, to get it started, or I could, uh, uh, I could give you books and um, for Nicholas, uh, activities and stuff like that. So that woman, she had typical kids, and then she had Nicholas as her only one and only special needs child. Yeah. So that was in Egypt. That was in Egypt. You must have felt a little bit like DDA back in the 60s when we created the first special needs school. <laughs> I think so, yeah. You're a groundbreaker in your own right. But I, I, again, I, I, you're right, I forgot to mention Egypt. And I would like, how was the community rallying around you there? Is that, did you feel supported or did, like, what's inclusion like in Egypt? Uh, I, in Egypt, I was involved in. Um, in creating the first directory for special needs um, to help families like mine uh, who had to go from from uh, uh, from zero to find out where you know where is the special needs school and uh, what services do they do they deliver and so I'm, and that's one thing I'm quite proud of. Um, so my name is on the first page of that book. It's quite a thick book. I did it together with um, with an NGO, um, and so uh, and so hopefully it's still around. And I think it is. And they probably keep updating it when new services come up. So it was. It had the list of schools who were inclusive, who accepted people with special needs. Uh, and there were, it was also a list of, say, physiotherapists, um, speech therapists, and those speech therapists who could also do it in French or in mm. English, and uh, apart from Arabic. And, and so it was, it was very good. Yeah. So this is kind of a support manual that you helped put together? Yeah. And that was in Egypt? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Mm -hmm. that, sounds, that sounds really good. Um, by comparison, um, when you come back to a country like Canada, how does the how does that feel? What 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 are, what are the differences that you've noticed being back here? I felt so relieved. <laughs> <laughs> so for the first time in our life, we had like uh, we had like um, stability in in the care, uh, and so for the first time, things were organized. So Nicholas was enrolled in Eric Hamber, which was near Oak Ridge, mm -hmm. where yeah. where where we lived. Um, so we had the support of a social worker, a case manager, um, um, the, the school um, 
pediatric team, so there was um, there was a physiotherapist, there was so that felt so different and so much better. Yeah. What about what about the overall um, levels of acceptance in Canada? Like, I mean, having some support and some inclusion of it, but I sometimes wonder, walking down the street in other countries, if people, you know, look at you weird or cross the streets or, or something like that. How does Canada feel against these other countries? Canada is one of the best. I, rem I remember in China, Mrs. Go, the, my second, you know, the second mother of my kids, I remember one day she was taking Nicholas outside for a walk and she came back really fast and she was crying. And so I asked her, what's, what's wrong? What's the matter? And she said someone on the street had told her, why do you take care of someone like him? He's, he's a waste, you know, he's, <laughs> you know, he's a waste of resources. He's, and she was so shocked and she came back right away and she was in tears. and. Uh, so well, and then you've got to know, of course, that China has one billion three hundred million people, and to 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 feed, mm -hmm. and probably some of those people see people with disabilities as a waste of resources. Mm -hmm. And when the government is not encouraging um, the support for people with special needs, then of course that's how also the population. It's, so it's very sad. Yeah, it's unfortunate. There's going to be there's going to be those people, you know, that just don't support it and are, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's weird. But um, so in spite of feeling really, you know, great and at home and at ease and accepted here in, in Canada, what do you see that we can be doing differently or better? Um, so Canada, as much as is one of the best countries we we've lived in and we still live here, um, and I'm so grateful to be here with the family after live after having lived in five and six different countries. But obviously, nothing is perfect, and um, I th I wish families would have more choices um, about options, like just like everybody else. Um, that they would have options where to live, um, and I'm talking about their children with special needs. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes due to funding constraints, they tell you, okay, we're going to find a home share provider for your child, but that's going to be in Burnaby. And so if you live in Surrey or in Richmond, um, of course, naturally you would like your child to be close, and some and it's hard to have those choices. Mm -hmm. um, I also heard recently that the government funding to CLBC is going to be more challenging to get as they get more people every year transitioning from high school into young adulthood. Mm -hmm. And, um, and um, that saddens me um, because uh, it's really hard on families when school is over and they have those six hours of school taken away and it's like okay what do we do now and and often is nothing the answer is there's nothing mm -hmm. until you have funding put in place and you have the support in place and the care workers and it, it takes a while uh, when Nicholas graduated from high school it was in 2008 and um, and I was one of those families when you know when high school was about to finish i asked the principal oh by the way um where where does he go from here what does he do from here from and the principal said i honestly have no idea 
Mm-hmm. So that was quite disheartening. I actually was the first coordinator of a transition group called Vancouver Parents Transition Group, um, which is still going on now. And um, uh, one of DDA um, staff, Terry Schenkel, mm-hmm. was one of the strong, really one of the best advocates for families um, that he would, he helped me get uh, Nicolas income assistance, he, he, you know, he, he really went all the way like okay so it was it was great to have yeah he was he was very good to to be part of the dda team he's retired now yeah um but that often i hear for families that is sort of a difficult time there's there is that transition period between high school where you age out of childhood um programs but you're not ready for adult programs yet so uh you know and whereas dda we have lots of day programs and, and things that people take advantage of and and we've got a very robust art program with our instructor kim almond and they produce some amazing amazing stuff so i'm uh, i'm not sure what spectrum offers i know you're he's he's in a group home with spectrum but do they have all the same sort of sort of programs that dda would offer uh nicholas because of his disabilities uh is kind of challenging for him to fit into a day program. Mm-hmm. Like he has to have his two hours nap after lunch. Okay. Uh, and so what he does is more like a home-based program. Right. Like um, we customize his program for mm-hmm. him. So mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, he goes swimming once a week and he goes to Science World once a week and um, he goes to the library and he has music and um, um, and so and I think he has he has a good life yeah so he really likes a lot of structure yeah I think he likes that uh, at the same time as I mentioned in my book sometimes I really wish he could have more fun he's 35 and he's a guy and mm. uh, and um, sometimes you know his brother jokes with me he said mom maybe you should take him to a pub and you guys have a beer or <laughs> yeah why not? <laughs> exactly. Why not? So I'm like, okay. <laughs> I can recommend some good ales. That's no problem there. <laughs> now, um, um, moving on to some of my, uh, my other questions here. Like, I don't have the lived experience you have. Um, you talked in your book about a time when Nicholas fell in the bathroom and hurt his t- hurt one of his teeth. Did he knock? Actually, knock the tooth out. Yeah, he ouch, did. Ouch! Ouch! Oh yeah. And that that was in Russia, was it? That was, that in, was Russia. in Russia. And, yeah. Um, in spite of the fact that the caretaker w- was there, and you talk about guilt having not been around yourself, uh, I am a parent. I understand guilt uh, if something happens to a child. Not so much now; they're they're older and they can look after themselves. Mm. But um, but is, is that guilt harder when your child has developmental disabilities and doesn't grasp certain situations? How do you deal with that feeling? Yeah, it's harder because of course they are more vulnerable. Uh, Nicolas doesn't speak; he's nonverbal. Like I said, he's really a two-year-old in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so obviously he wouldn't know whether a situation is dangerous and he wouldn't know how to call for help. And so in in that situation, I believe, so he was with with a babysitter who maybe, you know, I could have trained her longer. Uh, and so that's where some of my guilt is, that I was too much of a hurry to go to a cocktail party or to a dinner <laughs> party. Um, and and um, and so I was, okay, so she had two session training, she should be good to go. And obviously that was not enough. Mm-hmm. So she left Nicolas standing in the bathroom um, while she went to get, um, to get a, a diaper. And Nicolas doesn't have 
a good balance. But maybe she was not really aware of that at the time. Mm. Maybe I did not stress that. I, you know, it's hard for me to remember. But what happened is that Nicholas was standing around in the bathroom on his own and somehow must have lost his balance, fell and knocked his tooth on the on the sink of of that bathroom and um, lost one tooth. Yeah. And that uh, must have been painful. Too. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm I've, sure. I've been there. I understand. It is painful. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, let's go. I wanted to touch touch base a little bit about Russia, because you mentioned that uh, that was sort of the worst country when it comes to inclusion, even diversity. You talk about living in this area where they had these neo-Nazi rallies and stuff. That sounds scary to me. Like, how did you how did you cope in a in a in a country like that? Yeah, it was scary at times. I felt vulnerable. I felt isolated because in Russia, the, when a child is born with visible disabilities like Down syndrome or like any other encephalopathy, you know, mm-hmm. the government tells, encourage the family to give the child away, to give that baby up to the government. And then those babies are somewhere in the countryside in Russia. So you don't see many of them in the city. I, the two years I was there, I've never seen one. And I wow. think that's one of the reasons when people saw me walking the street with Nicholas, they were all staring um, uh, and really staring at you, like with those big eyes and like, oh, who is she? What is she doing here? And that was what I was telling myself too. What, what am I doing here? No, everyone is staring at me. <laughs> so yeah, it was quite difficult. And then we went to this orientation meeting as a newcomer and this really nice Russian man is there and he says, okay, don't do this, don't do that. Don't don't bring chrysanthemums to as an hostess gift because that's what we use for funerals. So, you know, kind mm-hmm. of the cultural things. Yeah. And then at one point he says, oh, and around the 20th of April, don't, don't leave your place if you're a visible minor- minority. And uh, no, so there were a few of us mm-hmm. from Africa, from Asia, and we kind of looked at each other. And finally, one brave one raised her hand and said, why is that? And the guy said, oh, it's because the 20th of April is Hitler's birthday. And, uh, and, if, uh, and if you're kind of dark-skinned or de- look different, it's better you stay home. And I'm like, what? I no, Honestly, it was... I really felt like, oh my gosh, this country is not for me. I that sound, I mean, it sounds completely backward to I, me. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and they so the, the the Russian government really encourages you to give up kids and what they just take them to these institutions out in the countryside. Yeah, yeah. Any idea about those the conditions of those institu- institutions? That I'm scared to even ask that question. Yeah. So when I looked into those institutions and um, and you see babies in their cribs with no human contact at all. Um, because there's not enough staff or, uh, and so quite a few of them got adopted um, by Canadians or, mm-hmm. or, or Americans. But um, I feel for the families who had to give up their babies because they were kind of really put under a lot of pressure. Um, mm-hmm. The doctor would come and talk to the mother and say, your baby, you know, is better. You forget about your baby. Oh. That sounds. I mean, again, that's that's why DDA was created. You know, back back in the 40s and 50s here, that's what doctors would tell parents. You know, put them in institution, forget they even existed. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and now, you know, 72 years later, we know that 
community living and inclusion works so much better. Early intervention works so much better, and we we can bring these people into the community, and they can have enjoy happy and joyful lives. Absolutely. You know? yeah. um, so everything that you've been through to me sounds immensely challenging. Uh, but even in the book, you had ideas of, of adopting a third child. Now, I, I guess that did, that didn't pan out, but I kind of keep thinking, wow, you want to do even more? <laughs> so instead you got a dog, a nice big dog named Shona. I guess yeah. she, I, I'm sure she's no longer with you anymore. But uh, yeah. but you, you're that kind of person you just want to take on challenges. Is that it? Well, it, you know, it's a good question because when you have a child with special needs um, and you have another child who is typical, and I had always felt that I was raising two only children because they were so different. Mm -hmm. And so, and I felt sorry for Michael uh, that he didn't really have the sibling he, he, he wanted because Nicholas was nonverbal, so they could not communicate. They could not really play much with each other. They did at the beginning when they were both very young, but as as they both grew up, Michael uh, soon enough realized that his brother was, you know, not a typical, um, mm -hmm. was not a typical child. And so I felt the idea of the third child, I think, was more for Michael than for Nicholas. Mm. As you mentioned, I had enough to do with Nicholas, <laughs> but I felt, somehow I felt really sorry for Michael that mm. he didn't have the sibling he could have had if I had a typical child. Yeah. And that sort of leads me to another question. I, there's lots of studies that show um, siblings of, of people with developmental disabilities uh, develop more empathy and compassion. Do you see that in Michael? Yes, I do. You know, like he has this elderly neighbor um, next to his flat and he's really, you know, helping her out. He asks her, do you need anything? Can I do shopping for you? Can so I see that in him and, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see that, yeah. That's good. Um, so at the, end of, at the end of all this, what made you decide to write a book, a little memoir on this? I felt that I feel that not many families um, decide to have the life we had, like moving from country to country. So let alone with a child with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the end of our nomadic life in 2005, um, after I kind of helped to get Nicolas' life settled, uh, I felt I really need to write uh, a book about our life. Um, there is a quote from Maya Angelou where she says, there's no greater agony than carrying a story inside you that is still waiting to be told. <laughs> and, and I felt that way, like I need to tell the stories. And so what is it? what did you hope to achieve with this? Uh, raising a greater awareness about um, people with disabilities and their families, and if possible, helping in a way, in some way or another, to improve the lives of those families and of those people with disabilities. Do you want to encourage people, of families of any shape or size, to travel around the world? I mean, COVID and technology means we can all work remotely in many ways. So would you encourage people to do that? Mm, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Just being honest, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. <laughs> That's so good. actually, actually, I was telling myself if someone were was to tell me now, would you do that life again? Mm -hmm. I think I would shoot that person. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
to put it bluntly. <laughs> to put it bluntly, I would look for a gun somewhere. Now, uh, one, of, one of my last questions I want to ask you is you said in the book that Nicholas is your biggest teacher. How so? Because he, in his own way, he, he taught me so many things. Um, I had to learn on the job by, for, to, to be a mother of a special child. And um, I never had any experience before. I was never exposed to people with disabilities before Nicolas. So that was really for me a big, you know, a big thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we kind of grew up together. Um, Nicolas needed care, provided care, and um, and um, he made me understand vulnerability. He made me understand resilience. Um, so with him, I grew up to become resilient. I, I became resourceful. I, he, he made my life bigger. Um, and for me to get to know other families was one of the best things for me because um, I didn't feel alone. And um, Nic through Nicolas, I made some of my best friends for life. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. That's really good. Anything else to add today? Well, I, I, I think I would really like, I still hear so many families living in really dire situations because they don't have enough funding for their kids. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, I um, especially feel for aging parents. I am an aging parent. Mm -hmm. I turned 65 not a long time ago. and. Uh, and I still have things to do for Nicholas and with Nicholas, um, st uh, st stable housing and uh, a circle of good friends around him that will keep an eye on him. So as you approach the end of your own, you know, as you are you facing your own mortality, to leave behind a child with with um, with uh, severe disabilities uh, is weighing on your head, right, on it your would mind. Be. Absolutely, right? I think it would be. Yeah. So those are those those worries, and I hope the government will make special provisions for aging parents. Like, okay, now that you've reached 70, you shouldn't worry anymore. We're mm -hmm. going to take care of your child. Yeah. And I know I eventually I need to go and see CLBC, the funding, the funding agency to, to increase Nicolas' funding because we are still taking care privately for some of his needs. And just the idea of going to, to see them, honestly makes me stressed, <laughs> makes me feel stressed a little bit uh, because they're going to say no and they're going to say, and then I'm like, no, I cannot take no for an answer. I need to insist again and mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, because I'm getting old and, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't want to, to, I don't want to worry about him um, while, I, while I get older. I don't want to worry about him when I'm 80 and um, so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing too. Like there, there are many families with with uh, you know uh, family members who have disabilities who are not well off. And where where do they get the money uh, to help their children? Like Down syndrome, for for example, you don't get a lot of funding for Down syndrome. So mm -hmm. you know, there's people out there creating advocacy groups today that are that are you know screaming for funding. Whereas other other uh, you know um, disabilities do get funding. So it's. It's we just got to keep pushing. We just got to keep knocking on those doors and making sure that voices are heard and, and money is, is there. So, Yeah, very true. So as I said, Canada is one of the best countries. So we have in Canada, we have RDSP, which is for the long term, yeah. you know, saving. 
We have um, you know, lots of school inclusion. We have inclusive education that is not available in many countries. So there are some good things, uh, but at the same time, there are still some gaps to be filled. Mm -hmm. And what you said about families, I think here, like everywhere, families would really be the backbone for change. Um, they, you know, we need to keep pushing, we need to keep talking to our MLA, to our MPs, to all levels of government that uh, they need to do more and they need to do better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that about covers it. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to DDA's Encouraging Abilities podcast. We cover many topics that affect the disability community, whether it's about inclusion, accessibility, and now traveling the world. You'll find it here. Our guest today has been Rochelle Rosolofo Cherwinski. I got it again. Thank you. <laughs> Author of uh, The Life That's Chosen Me from Russia with Love. It's her memoir about living in several different countries and moving around with her husband, Chris, and her two sons, one of, one of whom has severe developmental disabilities. It is available on Amazon if you want to check it out. Rochelle, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. See you next time.